The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning, and welcome to worship. My name is Meg McGuire, and I have the great pleasure of being the ministerial intern this year at the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco. I am so glad that all of you are here, joining us from your couches or your kitchen tables in this expression of worship that is what we have that is good enough right now. If you're joining us this morning for the first time, consider downloading our order of service, which you can find with just a click on our website or in the chat of the live stream. With the order of service, you can follow along this morning and also get a sense of the many opportunities to connect in this community. Our service this morning, as you'll see, is possible only through the labor of a community. So I wanna take a moment to name a few of the people who are instrumental in making this morning possible. From the team who skillfully manages the technology behind our live stream, our AV and sound expert, Jonathan Silk, and our wonderful camera people, Shuli Ong and Eric Shackelford. We also have Joe Chapeau, who's monitoring the chat. So if you have any questions, Joe will do his best to answer them. And we're grateful to Alex Starr and Les James, who are hosting Zoom coffee hour right after the service. Thank you also to those who've prepared and beautified our space. Our sextons, Thomas Brown and Roberto Delano, and Amy Kelly, who provided the beautiful flowers that we're enjoying this morning. Also, the people who've pulled together our music, Reiko Odelaine, our organist, Mark Sumner, our choir director, and our soloists, Leander Ram, Brielle Marina Nielsen, Ben Rudiak Gold, and Asher Davison. And of course, I am joined this morning by worship associate Richard Davis Lowell and our senior minister, Reverend Vanessa Rush Southern. Um, and we're so glad that all of you are here. Uh, I want to take a moment, as we have since March of this last year, to acknowledge all of you who, while you may not be here in body, are essential in weaving together the fabric of this community, which is what brings this worship together. So, with the kindling of this flame, we bring you a bit more in presence and spirit here into this space. We gather together this morning in the midst of Black History Month, or what some call Black Futures Month, a time for all of us to look back with gratitude for the freedom fighters and visionaries and artists and powerful black leaders and participants who have made the way out of no way to this point. It is a time to ground in love in the present and all that that requires from each of us. And it is a time that we might look forward to with commitment and imagination that we might co-create a world that honors black lives in their fullness, complexity, and exuberance. One small invitation to live into that present is in our offering this morning. So I wanna let you know in advance that we'll be taking the offering to support Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism, or BLUE. 
Blue is a collective committed to supporting and resourcing black Unitarian Universalists and to promoting justice-making and liberation throughout our faith. We'll have more information about Blue and how to donate later in the service, but there's just a heads up. This week, the minister's book group is reading and discussing John Lewis's book, Walking with the Wind, a memoir of the movement. The book and the sermon this morning reflect on John Lewis's life and its lasting import and legacy. And a powerful theme in Walking with the Wind is the role of music, especially African-American spirituals, in the resilience and resistance of those movements at that time. So our service this morning brings in some of that music and also some of the ways that that music, those spirituals have rippled out and inspired whole generations of other music. So at the close of the service, we'll sing We Shall Overcome, a version of which we just heard on the organ, um, which is an anthem not only for civil rights movements here in the US, but has become international um, in many civil rights movements and labor movements too. And our first hymn this morning is uh, We Are, a rendition by the classic from Sweet Honey in the Rock, whose music civil rights icon Ruby Sales has reflected was the spiritual grounding of an entire generation of African-American young people. So please join me now in singing hymn number 1051. We are. You'll find the words printed in your order of service. Welcome to worship, everyone. Builders of nations, 
with seekers of truth and keepers of faith. We are makers of peace and the wisdom of ages. We are the grandmother's prayers and we join me in our chalice lighting. You'll find the words in our order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Good morning, everybody. If this is your first time joining us, thank you for being here. As Meg mentioned, the order of service, which will be your companion through this service, if you'd like a written companion, it's available. There's a description in the video, in the chat. It's emailed to all of us, too, those of us who are on the newsletter mailing list every Friday with a link to Sunday's worship and a link to the order of service. So if you haven't already and are inclined to fill out our connections form, that will be one way we can add you to that list and you'll have easy access Sunday morning to everything that you need to be with us in worship. The Order of Worship also lists the events that are upcoming in the life of this congregation. Those events begin right after worship this morning with our Zoom coffee hour. So there's a link to join it. And in that coffee hour, you'll get a chance to meet a few people at a time in the breakout rooms. One of those breakout rooms will be designated, as it was last week too, with an experiment in hosting a sermon discussion group for those who want to process together some of the thoughts that the sermon or feelings that the sermon raised up in them and, and have some fruitful conversation around that. Donald Methusen is going to be the host for that. So when you join the coffee hour, just say that's something in particular that you'd like to be part of. So it begins there. Then there's some other special announcements I wanna make sure that you hear about. The first is about something related to our auction. Did you have a blast at the church live auction a few weeks ago? It was so much fun and you all donated really wonderful items. I'm Stephanie Gowan speaking to you as chair of the Stewardship Committee. Our committee's charge is multifaceted, but one of the key things we do is promote goodwill among the membership to facilitate generosity. 
Our annual auction not only checks this box, but also provides much-needed operating funds for the church, and the auction has grown to become an essential part of the UUSF operating budget. We had one item during the live auction, a fabulous UU-themed trip to the Honolulu area that ended before everyone who wanted to bid got that opportunity. So we're opening that item, and only that item, up for bidding again. How cool is that to get a second chance? The stay is for four days, anytime between October 2021 and March 2022, by prearrangement with the hosts, excluding December 20th through January 8th, and the trip includes airfare. The house is approximately 35 minutes from the airport and directly across the street from the ocean in a central location. The hosts say that they eat almost all of their meals on the open air lanai that overlooks the ocean. Water activities are year-round because Hawaii, and it includes swimming, plus watching dolphins, turtles, and monk seals. The host provides snorkels, a kayak, and paddle boards. Now here's the UU connection. Your gracious hosts are Dan and Sue Carpenter, fellow Unitarian Universalists and friends of Reverend Buren's. They are world travelers and adventurers, so I encourage you to look up more about them on the auction page. Plus, the UU congregation of Honolulu was including a welcoming dinner in the package. Bidding on this trip to Hawaii opened today and it closes at 12.30 p.m. on Sunday, 2.28. If you missed bidding the first time around, now's your chance. There's a link to the item in today's order of service. There's also a link on the UUSF.org website and we're including a link in the next issue of The Flame. You don't get many chances, so take advantage of this opportunity to bid on a fantastic experience. Thank you and good luck. So there's one opportunity to plan ahead for your vacation once all of this is over. Upcoming though, closer in, in timeline for all of us, in the order of worship, you'll see a number of opportunities for things like spiritual practices or service to the world through our connection to the food bank but also opportunities to deepen your spirit and the conversations about our place in the world. I'd commend to your attention that the Pagan Interest Circle will be hosting a gathering next Saturday night. For those who'd like to find out more, if you're interested in Earth-centered religion, there's an upcoming UU theology class that's for just our young adults, those in their 20s and 30s who wanna discuss what it is that Unitarian Universalists believe how does our past theological commitment carry forward today? And our Spirit Saturday is coming up next Saturday. You'll see that there are a number of workshops you can sign up for. The day is all, of course, virtual. We start with a gathering in brief worship and centering and then split up into workshops for 90 minutes and then regather for some brief connection before people head out into their day still very early in the day, so consider joining. And finally today, today our forum at two o'clock is hosting a special event and conversation on how to achieve a complete inclusive immigration reform, the moral and economic foundations. Our panelists are four stellar people with academic and activist backgrounds, that can talk to us and be in conversation with us and hopefully we can learn deeply from them. 
what are the barriers, what are the opportunities and arguments for creating finally a viable pathway to legalization for the millions of immigrant workers and their families and refugees here in the United States, people who have been living under a threat of arrest, incarceration, and deportation for far too long. But now, now we have a window with the new administration who just this week put forward a broad immigration reform proposal. We have a chance to advocate and leverage our power and voice, we hope, to make change. Please join the phenomenal panel that's gathered this afternoon for that discussion. And join in any and everything else that calls to your heart and mind, that brings you into community, and deepens the conversation about what matters in your life. So this is all I'm calling your attention to directly this morning. I'd like for us now to center ourselves in worship as we do each week, singing together our meditation on breathing. The words are simple. They're printed in your order of worship. If this is your first time with us, you can listen. There are multi-parts, so you can join in singing, joining whichever song leader you'd like, and the the practice is to lose yourself in the singing of it. So let's join together in our meditation on breathing. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, Please join me now in speaking together the words of our covenant. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another.
recognizing there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes, we ring our gong today in honor of three such places of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first, as we have since July of 2019, for those lives held and those lives lost in federal custody in our detention camps. For the over 500 children now permanently separated from their families, for all people held without charges in less than transparent or humane circumstances, in this repeat of some of the most shameful chapters in our nation's and our world's history of xenophobia, racism, and greed, we ring the gong seven times for this week of days in which these deeds have been done in our name. We ring our gong additionally once for the losses this week to COVID-19. This last week, 66,615 people died of COVID-19 globally, 13,374 in the United States alone. We hold in our hearts all of these losses and all who continue to risk their lives to provide essential services for those who suffer from loss of job, who are especially vulnerable to the disease, and we name with gratitude all who are working to get the vaccine produced and distributed and administered around the world. Finally, we ring our gong once for the people of Texas, Oklahoma, Mississippi, and across the United States who've suffered this week from the consequences of freezing conditions and an especially brutal winter storm. For the more than four million people who've lived without electricity or heat, for the countless people without access to safe drinking water, magnifying existing disparities caused by poverty, racism, and COVID-19. For the more than 58 people who have died as a result of the storm. May we keep those who we have named and their loved ones in our thoughts and in our prayers. And we, may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, howsoever we can.
Let us enter together into a time of silent and spoken meditation. Aware that time set apart is precious. That this time, what some call worship, invites us to give our attention, perhaps our greatest gift in regard, in reverence to the things of highest worth. To be in time set apart is to be in time differently, to be in our bodies a bit more fully, to be in the quiet that we know speaks loudly when we listen. We do this for its own sake and also for what it sows in us, what we can then sow in the world around us. So let us sink into this time apart together, welcoming whatever it holds for us each and us all. Spirit of life, source of all. For whatever emerged in the silence, for those whispers and nudges, those louder insistences too, for the depth of knowing that is in each one of us, and for the deep that calls us further still, for the experience of connectedness shared even across physical space, for that which is ever adapting 
renewing and regenerating in and all around us. For all this, we give thanks. May the silence and all of this hour be in service of what restores, what saves, what fully honors life. May this time together support us in readying ourselves for the steadfast presence, the small, steady steps to which we are called. May we bring with us from this time apart the willingness, the resolve, and the deeper love at the heart of it all. For all this, and for the silent longings in all of us, we pray. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, coming up, Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, coming up, Lord. Satan's a lord and a conjurer too. If you don't mind, out he'll conjure you. If I could, I surely would. Just stand on the rock where Moses stood. Rock, Elijah Rock. Shout, shout about Elijah, Elijah, Elijah Rock. We're gonna shout, shout about Elijah Rock coming up, Elijah Rock coming up, Elijah Rock coming up, Elijah Rock. Shout, shout, Elijah Rock coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout, Elijah Rock coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Classic R&B artist Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come has been swirling around in my head recently. I'm in a time of discernment right now, and it's not clear how things will work out, and I don't like uncertainty. Over the years, I've learned that clarity and a way forward comes from honesty and finding the courage 
to face my fears and do what I need to do. Clarity comes from deep inside me, but finding it and understanding it isn't a straight path for me. Do you know the feeling? A lot of balls in the air, decisions to be made, choices, and only one thing is clear. Things won't remain the same. I get ready when, one, I get scared. Two, when I really want something. And three, when I'm feeling really good. I put off getting ready, let's call that procrastinate, when I'm in the in-between, somewhere between thinking about what I've got to do and getting around to doing it. That waiting creates a sense of urgency and tension and maybe even a kind of excitement. I do this even though I've learned that I do my best work when I take the time to prepare. If I take the time to prepare, then I know my heart is really in whatever is coming. If I procrastinate, some part of me is resisting whatever I'm called to do. When I study something really difficult, I end up shedding tears before I know I've got it. I do my best work here when I've emptied myself out like that, but it's exhausting. In my work, there have always been a series of exams that have to be passed, a series seven, a 63. I passed those two only to learn that was just the beginning, an eight, a 16, a 24, a 54, quickly followed, all required, then an insurance license, a CFP, a CTFA, a CEPA, and now the biggest exam of them all, the AARP. It's this last one that's proving to be the most difficult to prepare for. I feel the same inside, but I can see the changes staring back at me in the mirror. I tell myself time isn't moving, but all around me the signs are unmistakable. Time is marching on. It can't be bargained with. It's always, it always wins, and I've got to get ready. But ready for what? I've worked every day for the past 40-odd years, day in and day out. Somehow, it feels that that is always the way it was going to be. I've tried to make my work a sacrifice, and I've found ways to honor my belief in humanity by service. How do we say it? Service is our prayer. I think I'll leave the world a better place for that, but a change is coming. I feel it, and I wonder, do I really need tears again to prepare for it? I watched the movie One Night in Miami recently, set in 1964. It's really a long conversation about preparation and change between four black men. Cleveland Brown running back Jim Brown, Malcolm X, Cassius Clay, and Sam Cooke, all struggling with changes swirling around them. Malcolm X sensed his time with the Nation of Islam was at an end. Football player Jim Brown wanted more than to be known as a great athlete. 
Cassius Clay, the baby of the bunch, was soon to convert to Islam and change his name to Muhammad Ali. But Sam Cooke resonated with me after a long career singing pop R&B in the late 50s, the world was changing. He had a kind of access. He talks about that in the movie, but that wasn't enough. Take a look and you'll see. Today I found new inspiration in his lyrics for change is gonna come. There have been times that I thought I couldn't stand or last for long, but now I think I'm able to carry on. It's been a long, long time coming, but I know a change is going to come. Don't 
dum dum my burdens on the riverside. I ain't gonna study one bum no more study one 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 Study one no more, study one no more, study one no more, no more, I ain't gonna study one no more, study one no more, study one Today is John Lewis's birthday. He was born on this day in 1940, and we lost this great leader in our country just this past year, on July 17th. It's fitting then that our reading this morning is from Walking with the Wind, a memoir of the movement by John Lewis with Michael D'Orso. It was at this time that I began believing in what I'll call the spirit of history. Others might call it fate or destiny or a guiding hand. Whatever it's called, I came to believe that this force is on the side of what is good, of what is right and just. It is the essence of the moral force of the universe. And at certain points in life, in the flow of human existence and circumstances, this force, this spirit, finds you and selects you. It chases you down and you have no choice. You must allow yourself to be used to be guided by this force, and to carry out what must be done. To me, that concept of surrender, of giving yourself over to something inexorable, something so much larger than yourself, is the basis of what we call faith. And it is the first and most crucial step toward opening yourself to the spirit of history. This opening of self, this alignment with fate, has nothing to do with ego or self-gratification. On the contrary, it is an absolutely selfless thing If the self is involved, the process is interrupted. Something is in the way. The self, even a sense of self, must be totally removed to allow the spirit to end. It is a process of giving over one's very being to whatever role history chooses for you. So ends our reading.
train to Jordan, picking up passengers from coast to coast. Faith is the key, open up the doors and bottom, there's hope for all among those long the most. Mayfield wrote the song we just heard in 1965, the year after the March on Washington, inspired by the I Have a Dream vision and the song that followed that speech, the crowd singing their faith that we shall overcome all the racism and violence and divisions that had been laid bare. 
Much like our experience of the last year, it wasn't that things needed to be laid bare. In some ways, the economic inequality, the threat and reality of violence against black folks, the barriers to equality and to participating in the political process, all of that was there to be seen if you looked. But it took the student organizers and committed activists to stage actions that called all the broken places into the spotlight. And then the violent and vicious reactions to the nonviolent witness, well, it made clear that the abscessed wounds of racism were still very much festering among us. Mayfield's song called the people to be ready. You don't need baggage, you don't need a ticket. Not for this train, he sang. Just be ready when the train comes when the spirit of history calls you, be ready to get on board. John Lewis uses that phrase, the spirit of history, regularly throughout his memoir, Walking with the Wind. I'd never heard it before, though it echoes in the famous words credited to Martin Luther King Jr. in his paraphrase of Unitarian preacher and abolitionist Theodore Parker, when King said, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. In those words, too, you can hear the spirit of history idea. This unseen guiding hand that unannounced would one day arrive to call you, to call each of us out of ourselves into service to help bend that moral arc of the universe down to touch the world. I suppose the idea of a spirit of history, the way Lewis describes it, it could be mistaken as something inevitable and irresistible, something that happens no matter what. And often in retrospect, we tell some of the biggest turns in history that way. Something of the fairy tale lover in us, I think, likes stories of preordained fate and destiny. But we'd be advised to be careful about those kinds of stories and telling them. I think they hide the most important quality of the spirit of history. If you're my age, I don't know if you remember how the story, for instance, of Rosa Parks got told when we were little. I do. This story of the woman who launched the Montgomery bus boycott, the boycott that lasted a year and 15 days from December 5th, 1955 until December 20th, 1956, when the people of Montgomery, mostly black folks in that city, a city that was one of the most segregated and vicious and brutal in the United States, when these folks refused to ride the most accessible and affordable means of transportation to get around town. In fact, 70 to 75% of the ridership of Montgomery buses were its black residents. Instead, they organized carpools and virtual taxi services, thereby gutting the transportation system, working to bring that city slowly to its knees and toward desegregation. 
Ultimately, a Supreme Court ruling, no doubt influenced by that same moral witness that was happening for a year and 15 days, that ruling finished off the work. It was an amazing victory on all fronts. And remember how it all started, we were told. It began with this one woman, Rosa Parks, who one day got on the bus, tired from being on her feet all day at the department store where she worked. Parks took an open seat, but later, as the bus filled up, was asked to give up her seat to a white woman and refused, was arrested, and the fire of resistance in the city of Montgomery was lit, the spirit of history. That version is partially true, but another version of the story is increasingly being told, one with more meat on the bones, you might say. This one about Rosa Parks as a woman already very much trained and committed as a participant in the civil rights movement, and a whole community of Montgomery people who had been readying themselves for action, the black community and allied whites. This was a community that had seen the bus boycott work in Baton Rouge, Louisiana that helped desegregate that city. Parks was the secretary of the local NAACP and she had traveled to the famed Highlander School Highlander Folks School in Tennessee, the same one that John Lewis himself would attend and be trained at, and trained there in many things she was, including nonviolent civil disobedience as a tactic. Her story is also a story of how 12 years earlier, Parks had been ordered by the bus driver, James F. Blake, to get off the front door of the bus and enter at the rear door which was sometimes required of blacks riding the bus in Montgomery, and how Blake drove off before Parks had time to get to the back door, and how Parks vowed she would never again ride a bus that Blake drove, and how it was Blake who was driving the bus that faded day that her spirit and her body were tired. And Blake, who would insist or try to that Parks give up her seat. In other words, on so many levels, Rosa Parks was prepared for that day. Not that anyone marked the day on her calendar as the day she'd take up civil disobedience as a practice and endure arrest to make a moral point and how folks would organize to shine the light on that point in history, but how on so many levels she and others had prepared for that day. They just didn't know exactly when it would come. But I expect they all knew that when the train pulled up, the one for which you didn't need a ticket, they were as ready as they could be to get on board. John Lewis's own memoir, it's filled with everything he does from his earliest days, before college and in college, to prepare himself for the work he will ultimately take up. Months of quiet days, his first year in his studies at Nashville American Baptist Theological Seminary, filled with his studies of the Bible, but also these off-campus meetings to prepare deeply in the philosophy of nonviolence, 
and the tactics of it, all the meetings and workshops to prepare his heart and emotions and spirit for what it will mean to love your neighbor, all the famous drills that he and those in training for the sit-ins and freedom rides would do to be able to take the abuse that they knew would come and not return violence for violence. There were months and years of training as an organizer building a network among fellow students and other leaders, one gathering, one conversation, one conference, one witness time, witness event at a time. And how at each stage he just kept stepping into the work when it presented itself to him. He didn't wait, in other words, to prepare only when the moment did arrive, at which point it would be too late. This reminded me of when I started at UUSF the first summer in 2017. Do you remember? There was some white nationalist group that was scheduled to do a rally. Eventually, I think the city decided to allow the group to only gather, I think it was at Chrissy Field. And remember too that a lot of the local progressive activists encouraged their allies not to show up. They said it would be more embarrassing for the event to happen with no crowd there than to give that small group the attention of our showing up in protest. But I remember there were some who wanted to go, who understandably didn't want this event to go on without obvious resistance. And I remember a group of us at church who were planning all along at various stages what our response would be to this promised visit by this group. We discussed the situation among us and what we should do. And I remember how Larry Danos, an older member and committed activist of this congregation, asked in his inevitable and inimitable, calm and humble and deeply concerned way, do these folks who want to go, do they know de-escalation tactics? Have they been trained? I fell in love right there with a community who had people like Larry so schooled in how to do the important work of religious witness, that they had the tools philosophically and tactically to be both able to reflect their values and how they showed up and also how to protect themselves in such moments as best they could. The truth is that some of the people who wanted to go to Chrissy Field that day were willing, but they probably weren't ready. Not the way ideally we would be. Reading Lewis's book has reminded me that the work we aspire to do around social change requires us to be preparing ourselves, asking everything from how we can create a shared vocabulary around the work, what shared practices we need, working to foster trust among ourselves and nurture this network of connections with those 
who will be with us in the work, and how all the reading of books and the conversations after church and the beginnings where we talk about what right relations and accountability might look like here among us and the speakers that we invite to hear about the issues of the days and determine where the levers for change might be. All the showing up to make connections with people in faith in action and the Interfaith Council and all the other local community groups around the city, all the going to Unitarian Universalist gatherings and the leadership trainings we attend, it all makes us more ready, even if, for what and when has yet to be revealed. And those moments when we will be called upon to respond in big ways and small, they will happen. They will happen at the table with family over Thanksgiving. Or when you find yourself, as I did, working at the food bank this last year when our state representatives showed up to volunteer too. Or when the press puts a microphone to your face as one did to me last Sunday because they liked the side with love placards that Dennis and David and I carried at the rally at Civic Center in support of our Asian friends and neighbors and loved ones and decrying the racist violence that is once again on the rise in this city. The moments are right there. And so we are the people who prepare. The point of all of this was driven home to me yesterday and not in a good way. Yesterday, at the memorial service for Ken Keep, which was gorgeous and joyful and sad all at once, at the end, we created time for sharing. And one person shared a lot of memories, but among them a story that was filled with coded racial language and biases of the kind that we Unitarian Universalists are committed to interrupting because of the harm they do. But in the moment, I could not think of what to say or how to say it. To be sure, my guard was down when it happened. We'd just been mourning a beloved friend. This person was a guest among us. The intent was not to do harm, of course. But I knew that the people of color in particular, but all of us, deserved some act to halt the moment and interrupt the harm. And here I was, irony of ironies, in the midst of preparing a sermon on the importance of being prepared. And I had not prepared for this moment. It struck me how moments when we need to act can hit a bit like an earthquake. How inevitably, when they happen, they shake us off our feet a little, don't they? How there's never any warning when they're about to come. We'll have just been laughing at a silly joke with friends, or we'll have stepped into dinner with clients, and boom. There it is. The woman is being threatened by her boyfriend. 
not so microaggression takes place among our party. The humanity of the person forced to sleep on the streets is being disregarded and diminished right before our eyes. All of it seemingly out of left field. If so, then like an earthquake, we similarly have to be prepared, right? We have to have run our drills. We have to know in advance where in general we'll go in such moments, what to grab as we head there, what kinds of things to say and how we might frame and say them. Affirm the humanity of the one whose intent is good and name the harm. Distract the abuser by pretending to know the one that they are threatening or feign a faint or an illness and ask for their help. Speak from the eye and speak our truth. No one else's. Next time, I promise you, I will be prepared. Allison and Meg and Joe and I, we processed what happened after the service. Others who were there and I processed it by a text. We agreed to take it to our racial justice task force to discuss and I began asking people I know and trust for thoughts and advice. We're gathering up ideas of how to hold a moment like this in the future. Because Parks and Lewis's lives teach us a lot, but one of the things they teach us and that many of us know from experience is the preparation that allows us to be part of the bending of the moral arc, which never happens by accident. Preparation is that part of the process, as, jo as John Lewis wrote, of giving over one's very being to whatever role history chooses for you. So, Daniel Jackaway will be repeating his workshop on bystander training this spring, take it. We'll be starting a discussion of a new principle that the denomination is considering to add to our existing seven. Come hear more about it next week and in the weeks ahead. The widening the circle report from the Commission on Appraisal, a report written over many years, assessing the racism in Unitarian Universalism and what we have to do to change ourselves to be who we say we want to be, it is available online. Read it. And then think about what piece you can bring forward for us to implement here. And maybe you have a training to offer. Let us know. De-escalation skills, maybe? Let's do anything we can to deepen our readiness so that when the train comes, the one we don't need a ticket for, we are a people always ready to get on board. May it be so.
And now, in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us. Out from within us, be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org 